Blog Talk Radio. ideas, cultural boundaries, crossing cultural boundaries, bringing knowledge to the digital community and the D.C. community in particular. We're here to expand ideas about art, writing, knowledge, publishing, production, while contending with challenges about access, virtual space, political context, challenges, and incursion of cyber cultures. You can find out more about what I write about and what I talk about on my blog, AfrofuturismScholar.com. Today, we have a very special guest. If you listen to my last show, you will have noticed that, yes, um, I do have an assistant, um, and he has been at my side working with me to put on some kick-ass podcasts. And so... Today we have Chase Duffy. He is a UDC English major. He is a future teacher. He is currently a poet. Born and raised in South Dakota, Chase Duffy has been studying in D.C. for the past four years, and he's been at UDC in particular for the last two years. Um, He has been working on a collection of poetry over his time, He intends to go into teaching high school English in the D.C. area after graduation. Chase, how are you today? I'm great, Dr. Tarpin. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Had some health challenges, but I'm still here. I'm still here. Um, And so um, your presence, um, pleasure to, to have you on the show. And today... You are the focus, and so um, 
So we're going to talk today about um, your writing. We're going to talk about your poetry. Um, definitely um, going to talk about your collection, Undergrad, that you've been working on. Um, and we're going to, of course, before we get deep into the conversation, we're going to hear um, your favorite poem from your collection, Undergrad. So first and foremost, how did you get into writing poetry? Uh, that's a great question. I have actually been writing poetry since elementary school, if you can believe it. Um, mostly love poetry back then, weirdly enough. But uh, I actually got serious about poetry around sophomore year of college. Um, definitely there was a big return to it in high school. Um, but Excellent. I started writing this collection undergrad in earnest in uh, sophomore year of college. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Um, did you did you have any uh, mentors or guides when you first started out? Um, so my my British <laughs> literature teacher over at Howard University, uh, her name escapes me because of the many events that were going on during the semester that I was taking her class. But um, that course. And just the um, in-depth study that we did into different poetry styles, um, meter and just pacing in poetry uh, kind of reignited that passion within me and also um, gave me an avenue to work through some things that were, were going on. I feel like poetry is a writer's therapy to an extent in the sense that it helps you uh, put into words different things that you are working with and try to work towards a resolution with that. So definitely that whole, just that last semester that I had at Howard was a uh, instrumental semester in getting my ass in gear and getting into writing. Like I had called myself a writer for a while but I wasn't producing the um, the amount of writing that someone who calls themselves a writer should be. Now I feel like I'm I'm getting closer to that. Right, right, right. I know that in my case, for instance, I mean, I've been writing poetry since I was a little girl. Um, I still have some old, old diaries from when I was um, a teenager. Um, I used to write well, poetry, um, I used to write a lot, a lot of other things that we won't talk about here today, but I've, um, I've been using writing as my way of just kind of pushing through. When you're a kid, of course, you know, parents, teachers, figures of authority, um, you kind of, you're looking for that space. And I know that for me that was important. Um, and so that was how I got into writing poetry. But I really was not, thinking of myself as, well, can I actually publish? I didn't start really thinking about that until um, probably closer to graduate school. Um, I wrote when I was living in Atlanta. I wrote when I was here as an undergrad. I used to work for the Department of Energy. Um, I used to work for National Endowment for the Arts. I was secretary. And um, when you work for federal agencies, 
Um, you kind of sit at your desk, you do your work and whatnot. Most people just kind of go home. I used to come in on the weekend mm-hmm. for the purpose of using the computer, using the typewriter, well, computers, um, you know, the word processors. And I was writing then, but it really wasn't until I moved to Vermont and I started working with published poets, people who um, were teaching not just at um, UVM, University of Vermont, but also Middlebury College and whatnot. And that's how I was able to kind of break a chain, so to speak, because most of my work tended to be very focused on the emotional, the non, um, well, the non-palatable. In other words, you know, when you're talking about emotions, when you're talking about experience, what, what you experience from the brain, from the heart, from the soul, if you're not grounding it in the five senses, um, in what you actually see, hear, smell, taste, et cetera, it kind of gets a little harder to connect, um, to try to connect with your audience. And that was something that I, um, um, that I had to learn. And it takes years at times. But you, you didn't take as long as I did. You are... And so I don't know about that, Dr. Serpin, because I do want to interject <laughs> that I am still an amateur writer, and I do not have any qualms about remaining an amateur writer if, like, the only person that wants to publish these poems is uh, Jeff Bezos, you know? There are definitely bad publishing deals out there, and I, you know, I'll just keep keep these in my hard drive on my computer if that's how it has to go try to get them published individually in little journals. But um, I don't know. Well, and I was about to say, I was about to say that that's exactly what I started off doing. Um, And that is actually beginning to publish them in individual um, anthologies, publishing them in individual um, journals. And so that is a very good way of starting. And no, you do not need a PhD to do it. You don't even, even need a master's degree to be able to um, to write effectively, to write from the heart, to write from the soul. Um, there are poets who are attorneys. There are poets um, who are ministers. There are poets um, who are chefs, who are cooks. There are poets who are secretaries. There are poets um, who are maids. And so it is it's a path towards getting your voice out there and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that um, that I can encourage you and that others can encourage you to not only keep it up, but to do exactly what I'm doing, which is encourage others to write. It's actually one of the biggest reasons why um, I keep my blog up, even though my my audience seems to switch over, I guess, according to whoever I decide to share it with and who I don't share it with. But let me ask you this. What's your favorite part of writing? Uh, For me, and I feel like for a lot of other writers, um, reading a complete piece of writing after you have hammered out all of the the kinks from it in the editing process is one of the most rewarding 
parts of writing. Um, yes. 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 Also, Absolutely. when you're in that creation zone as a writer, where um, whether it's poetry or prose or even like a uh, critical essay, um, right? When the words are just flowing and you don't have to stop and think about where you're going to go next, you already know where you're going. Um, that's also one of my favorite parts of writing. But that's, I feel like that's a little bit more fleeting than the complete piece of writing because the editing process right. is so reliable, right. you know? Right, right, exactly. So what's your least favorite part? I know that for some people it's editing and proofing. For others it's actually getting the ideas down. Where is um, your, your um your your hard point or the, the sharp point that's that's a little less comfortable. So I actually had both of those uh, written down as respective <laughs> least favorite parts of writing, but for me, yeah. I would have to say editing. Uh, yeah. Just for the same reason that reading a complete piece of writing is the one that I would have have to go with if we were going on reliability. Um, because yeah. you always have to edit a piece of writing, but you don't always have to sit there and fight through writer's block. Like sometimes writer's block is there and sometimes it's not. So it's it's annoying when it comes around. But um, I'd have to say editing is my least favorite just because it's, it's always yeah. there. It's always something you got to do two or three times on a, a piece of writing. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. Like, for instance, um, I use one of the, you know, I use one of the, um, error correction engines now, um, especially um, these days when having to kind of produce um, fairly quickly, um, which is great for formal essays, but for poetry, um, it's a um, it's a bane. It's not a boon um, because yeah. you know poetry does not necessarily follow the um, the rules. And follow the rules, you know. Yeah. And even poetry that purports to to be, um, you know, um, formal um, style, you're still not going to necessarily follow all of the rules, especially if you're writing in a particular way um, that is casual um, or in a way right. And so, um, and I like to use a lot, lot of a um, lot of spicy language at times, and that gets to be a bit of a challenge because that means that you have to train. Um, whatever it is that you're using to to ignore that, and that does not always work. Um, yeah. The other thing to, to to kind of think about, um, like for instance, um, I posted something on Facebook. It was an article um, about the unfortunate rise of fascism, and what you end up um, what you end up having to to, to deal with, or we as citizens, what we have to deal with is, um, you know, having, well, how do you respond to that? So I, I posted it, and when I post things on Facebook, I don't necessarily, there are no right or wrong answers. People can respond anyway. anyway. And, of course, my, my mother responded, and she had a particular perspective, and I felt that, okay, she's on the right path, but I think it's a little bit bigger. And so I responded to her, and then I was like, well, I'm going to say more. And I was like, now, this belongs in the blog, and that's exactly what I did. And, of course, I protected her name um, 
always. You always protect people, especially if you're, you know, if you have an actual permission, you always want to protect people's identity and whatnot because whatever the issue is, whatever it is that you're writing about, that's on you. That's where that you're coming from, your heart, your head on that. And so you, unless you're talking about somebody of political prominence, um, somebody who is internationally known, or some historical figure, generally speaking, what I like to do is I like to kind of say, this person's name redacted, or make up a name, whatever it is, make up a label, whatever it is, but you want to get your point across. That's what I did today. And finding myself having to revise, revise, rethink, revise, what's the point that I'm trying to get at? And I do that for my essays, my creative essays, which is what I do on my blog, creative, sometimes academic, um, sometimes political. But I also do that for my poetry. And so even if you're writing about a particular passion or a particular issue, what you want people to, to kind of get is the emotion, yes, behind it, but you want them to get that, get that particular message. And sometimes you have to find inspiration from the most unusual places. For me, sometimes it's Twitter, sometimes it's Facebook, sometimes it's Lipstick Alley. Yes, there's a lot of people don't like Lipstick Alley. For good reason, but I still like it because I like working with people and I like talking to people and sometimes upsetting them. Go. Well, and as a writer, I feel like writing is about what upsets you from the middle, no matter if it's, you know, love, taking you high, or excitement, taking you high, or if it's, you know, anger, taking you the other direction, or sadness. Um, I feel like all emotions in and of themselves are important to artists because it helps you create in one mode of thinking or another. And then I feel like artists that get stagnant are ones that write in one mode too much, you know, because no one wants to be happy 100% of the time or angry 100% of the time. I mean, I guess people might want to be happy 100% of the time, but no one is happy 100% of the time. It comes across, you know. But on the subject of, like, poetry and creation, um, I feel like I can give no tips whatsoever in writing prose because that is not uh, my strong suit as of right now as a writer. But for poetry, right. what's worked for me over the last couple of years um, is I have like a, a rough draft notebook, a final draft notebook, and then I put it all onto like a Word document on my computer. So no matter Excellent. what, I have two edits built in because I'm, you know, transcribing the poetry once in handwriting uh, from the original, and then I'm typing it in. So it definitely helps, and it's, I don't know, because for me with poetry, it's harder for me to, with a piece of writing, it sits in the back of my mind, and I know I have to go back in to edit it. But with poetry, it's harder for me to go through the multiple editing process, and it just, I don't know, that system helped me to build in checks and balances for myself as a writer um, to, you know, give those poems the second and third looks. And honestly, they probably need more looks. I could use more notebooks or just more discipline to go back and (laughs) edit them uh, more than two times. But um, for right now, as far as, you know, getting... Yeah. 
Yeah. Do you have something um, for us to, uh, to, 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 to hear today? Would you like to share something today? I do. Uh, one of your favorite I do. Poems? I, have, I have a couple. Um, okay. One of them is, because we were talking about, like, the multiple emotions of writing. Uh, one of them is, yes. you know, a little bit more of a sad poem. One of them is more of an angry poem. So okay. I'll start with the sad All one. All right. Okay. It's entitled Father's Day. Mm. Okay. It's Father's Day, Dad, and I'm missing you fiercely. <clears throat> Wishing like hell we could talk again. I'm thinking back on all the good times we had, the images that once appeared much more clearly, whose edges now muddle and with your memory blend. I know you know, Dad, how we miss you dearly. Love, loss, and lessons were these last year's painful triad. But we've done our best without our father, God, and best friend. And though your passing pained us severely, though it made our hearts and souls quite sad, and at times was hard to even comprehend. I cannot be mad. It's your time to transcend. It's time to leave this earth and these men. When I think about it like that, I can't help but be glad. I guess all I'm trying to say is, Happy Father's Day, Dad. And then moving to the angry poem. Uh, I apologize if this is a non-cursing platform. There's a couple of curses. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not a non-cursing. Let me let me just let me, let me, let me pause before you before you get into it. Here's here's the thing, and I think you know this from from being in my classes. Um, I am a person who is a true believer in academic freedom. We know that when you're teaching K through 12, um, that there is a certain level of language. And so we know that when you're teaching young people, that, of course, you, you are, of course, teaching them standard English, and, of course, you're not teaching them tough language. But I think that given the history of poetry, modern, postmodern poetry, um, there, is no, there is no censorship. There shouldn't be, well, and especially with right. It's, right to an extent. Within, within, not in, to. And I'm just saying, not to, not to <laughs> dampen my future career opportunities, but there is going to be somewhat of a blurred line. Like obviously, in a uh, essay that you are turning in that's formal, um, there should be no curse right. words. But in a, you know, like a personal monologue, or if we're doing creative writing in class, there's there's going to be some lenience, especially depending on if I'm in a freshman versus, you know, junior, senior class. Um, I don't know. I feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely important to to English. Right. Right. And so I want you to embrace that and never feel shame for expressing your voice. So let's hear the anger. Let's hear it. All right. Um, I wrote this early June. It's entitled Fuck 12 Forever. Right on. Forget all the bullshit the media feeds you. Understand how tired we are. Calling us the land of freedom and truth. Killing our countrymen and putting the rest behind bars. 
truth and freedom aren't available in this land when your skin has a darker hue. Every pig in the world is eternally damned. Love them or stay silent, and you will be too. Understand, please, our anger and frustration. End your histrionics about the riots and looting. For which threatens more our humanity and nation? Our collective rage or these fucking pigs shooting? Roll back their immunity, that immense protection. End their centuries-long reign of terror. Vanquish this evil and give America a blessing. Even as our officials perpetuate this grievous error. Rise up now and change this country's direction. Right on. Right on. Look, if we were in a room, we need to do a quick, 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 quick. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your voice. Absolutely. Thank you for giving me the platform to share. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that needs to be shouted out. There is an affinity in the fact that we have people who supposedly represent justice, who perpetuate injustice. So there is there is a there is a cause. There is a reason why your voice has to be angry. There is good reason and justification for the anger. And certain words like bullshit, like fuck and all the other words that um, that for some people it just it, it it you know it can't handle it. Well, what's worse, hearing the language or experiencing the obscenity of injustice? So, I think I'm gonna say, oh, well, I'd rather hear hear the cut one than the cut word. I think I'd like rather rather like that um, um, a lot. So. I don't know. What has been D.C. been like in general, and what's it been like attending UDC as opposed to Howard? Um, So D.C. in general has been amazing. Coming from South Dakota, I I lived in the two biggest cities in South Dakota, but that city is a loose term when you're talking about South Dakota. Um, They're more of just suburban sprawls. So getting to an actual city has been amazing just in terms of um, the Smithsonian's, in terms of the the culture and the arts that come to this city. The Library of Congress. Also just in terms of all of that, plus uh, I was just talking to my mom about the election and how D.C. voted 93% in favor of Biden, which it is not, that is another thing that in, when comparing my expectations about D.C. and the reality of D.C., I didn't, I wasn't prepared for the elitism and for the racism that this city still has. But that being said, it is nice to be in a, in a, collection of people where everybody who you talk to either agrees with you or is too scared to disagree about Donald Trump being an absolutely terrible person. So that has been nice okay. for the last four years, even though we're, you know, two, three right. miles from the map. 
Right, exactly. It also highlights the, um, some of the inconsistencies. Where on the one hand, you might yep. have people who, who voted for Biden, but they're still sexist, racist, elitist, classist, colorist, homophobic, exactly. transphobic. There were 93% <laughs> of this city was not in the streets protesting after George Floyd was murdered, to put it in the simplest terms. There are people who care, but the levels of care are not at the level that you would want them at. Right. Now, I will will say this. Now, I did participate in the protest on campus with President Mason. I do find it astonishing that out of all of the so-called prominent black folk in this town, the president of UDC um, was there. The dean of the law school was there. There were a few faculty, such as myself, a few board members. But the folks who you would really want to be out there in support is a question, you know, there's a, there's a question mark. And, of course, if the response to somebody saying defund the police is, oh, well, they're not all bad, well, we need the police. Or maybe maybe George Floyd needed blah 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 blah, blah. and they're not really paying attention to the history of how the police are. They're not really they're not there for the citizens. They're there for the elite. They're there for the upper class. They're there for the ruling class. And so, as far as the police are concerned, they are not they're not there to serve the taxpayer. And yet, they're they're getting funded as if they're the military. Um, which means that we don't have well-funded schools, including UDC, which means we don't have um, resources that are being distributed in an equitable manner and not according to whether you live in Northwest or not or whether you are part of the gentrification class or not. So, yeah, there, you know, there's something to be said about that. And speaking of elitism, what are you going to do differently as a teacher than – what you have seen, whether it comes to good or bad teachers. I'm a teacher. I'm not perfect. I learned from other teachers. No, but you're you're not perfect because no teacher is perfect, but you are a great teacher. And I'll tell you why in the reasons and how I'm going to be different well, from bad teachers. The two main aspects. Yeah, I want you to be No, honest. no, I know, I know. That's what I'm I'm absolutely yeah, Let's be honest right you. here. I've taken a class from yeah. you every single semester since I've been at UDC. I don't do that with bad teachers. That would be very, very self-inflicting harm if you were a bad teacher and I, I took classes from you every semester I was at UDC. You're, you know you're a great teacher off of the consistency that I've been in your, your courses. Uh, let's just say that okay. I'm not – that is honest. That oh. is 100% But you're not just an ass because um, I don't – because you know oh, I don't – Not I, at all. I, right. Not only, do I do, not only do I not want students to kiss my ass, I don't want you to come away thinking that in order for you to move up, you have to kiss other people's asses. Unfortunately, no, I know. you and have people – yeah, you have people who think like that. And you saying that too, Dr. Turpin, is just another aspect of how you're – a good teacher, but like, so for me, the two 
aspects of bad teachers are teachers who do not listen or teachers mm-hmm. who do not care. Right. So if right. a teacher is not listening but they care, they might have really high standards set in the class and have a lot of coursework set out for you to do because they want you to learn a lot, but they don't listen to the concerns of their students in the class when they start telling them, hey, we might be overloaded here a little bit. Then there's the teachers who don't care, who just, you know, come in and it's worksheets all day. I had a biology class in high school like this where I'm pretty sure the teacher was watching YouTube videos or reading uh, the news uh, for about 90% of our classes. Like, literally, we'd just come in, hand out worksheets, and then sit down at his desk. And it was a very easy class. I'm not arguing against how easy the class was. I just don't feel that I learned enough about biology in that class. Um, right. So, and, you know, that's the twin aspect of... It's boring. It's boring, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Because I don't know. It, it always blew my mind that he didn't just pursue another profession if he didn't care at that right. level, which that's another aspect right. of me going into high school teaching is I am, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and excited to get into the classroom and teach English. If I ever feel that it's excitement just, drained from me, then I can yeah, always I'm pursue a, something else. Right. I don't need to hurt right. myself and the kids by going in right. and not loving the job and loving teaching them, you know? So and your love that's, for those the are the job two things. I'm going to try to, right. try to right. care right. enough about their education and then right. listen enough to a, them to know if I'm overloading them, you know? Right. Well, and I'm thinking about, um, I'm kind of thinking about something else. I kind of feel as though this, first of all, you cannot look at teaching as a burden. You cannot think of writing or research as a burden or something that you just, you, you think of as something as, oh, my God, I have to do this. It's not that it's not hard work. It's not that you don't acknowledge it. But first and foremost, if your goal in life is to tell people how famous you are, how smart you are, you're in, the, you're in this business for the wrong reason. If you, if you are in this business because you want to rule over people, we see this every day. I'm not saying all administrators in, 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 in K-12 and higher education do this. Um, talking to one of, my, uh, one of my friends, and he and I shared a professor, Veronica Mikowski, if you can look her up, she's probably still at UConn. Veronica Mikowski really didn't like me, and that was cool. Because guess what? I still learned from her, and I still use what I learned from her. She gave me the lowest grade for grad school, a B, and I valued it and cherished it. Why? Because she gave me what I needed, and I got out of there. And she became an administrator and then went back to teaching. Why? Because she didn't become a professor to become an administrator. She came into higher education to be a teacher and a scholar. And that, to me, is where it's at. And so if you're teaching K-12, you're there because you love people and you love teaching people and you want, to, you want them to carry the gifts that you have for them. What you learn from us, hopefully you'll be able to pass on to the young people that you teach. And so I think if we had more people like that, I think our K-12 schools would be better. I think if we had more people like that who supported 
teachers and professors, our K through 12 schools would be better. Our higher education institutions would be better. If you have people who spend their entire time looking for opportunities to put their leather boots on people's necks because they're fascists in their hearts, they probably should not be in education at all. That's just me. But you don't oh, no, sound absolutely. like that. I would 100% agree. When you start getting yeah. too authoritarian in the classroom, you start losing your your classroom just off of this. And that's the other thing about why I want to go into teaching so early coming out of college is because I don't want to lose my familiarity with the experience of being a student, you know? And I feel like if I go into it now with this mindset, then this mindset is what will solidify as a teacher where it's like, you know, I'm I'm going to be understanding. I'm going to be empathetic I'm right. not going to try to, you know, I'm not in the business of education to flunk anybody out. Uh, right. If that <laughs> is what has right. to happen, then that yeah. is uh, yeah. inevitability. But I'm not trying to do that with anybody, and that's not, you know, I'm not trying to right. threaten anybody, really, in my classroom. Right. Um, but, I'm glad you said uh, that word. It, yeah, I'm glad you said that because... That's the other thing that I've that I've made note of, and that is there is there's an attitude that I see among among some folks who say that they're educators, and that is instead of them thinking in terms of cooperation and people working together and working as a collective, they do one of two things: either they decide to use manipulation, which to me is emotional abuse, or domination intimidation, which is another form of abuse. And if you do that with students, there's not going to be much learning. There's not much space for learning. The only thing that you're doing is quote-unquote programming people. And perhaps that might be something that people might need to work on. Do you know what? Believe it or not, we're down to six minutes. Can you believe it? Oh, my God. No, this really flew by. Yes, it did. I want to do another one. So my door is always open to you because I want to, I want to hear more about what you do as a poet as you progress. And I definitely want to hear about your experiences going into the classroom and really becoming a part of the DC community. Um, and, you know, and as, a, as someone who is politically progressive, somebody who is politically um, and just in general, just seem to have a, con- a, a connect, right? I really want to yeah. hear where you're where you're going. And so, as an alum, I'm I'm definitely inviting you back. Um, our my next couple of guests, I'm going to have a student. I'm going to have an alum. I have an alum who has published um, a science fiction novel. I have a student, a senior, who's about to graduate just like you, and she is also doing some very important work um, for black women. And so you fit right in. You fit right in. And so this will not Mm -hmm. be our last time talking. So I want to make sure that we cover at least how many other. um, What do you feel about Common Core? 
Um, and I'm asking I feel, this as somebody who's been through it here at UDC, the so-called Gen Ed, and as somebody who's been through the K through 12 system. So I think the um, the general idea of Common Core is one that a lot of people agree with to an extent that everyone in the United States should receive somewhat of the same K through 12 education. I think where common core airs is how narrow it makes that um, definition. Mm -hmm. So I don't know in my, in my, uh, next couple of years teaching, I'm looking forward to, just trying to find creative ways to circumvent Common Core. And, you know, like if I have to present Shakespeare uh, to allow me to choose the Shakespeare that I want to present to these kids versus... Or not only that. Right. Not only that. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's not just that. How you're teaching it. So if you do new, do this new historicist approach or a cultural criticism approach to uh, to Shakespeare or some of these so-called dead white males, that change changes things, um, especially if you're introducing that way of thinking to K through 12 students. By the time they hit college, they're not programmed into thinking that white people have invented everything. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, and just being to able do, to show the right. kids like Othello or Merchant of Venice or um, Prospero with a that lens, with that progressive lens of reading. And then, you know, I mean, if they want to go the traditional route, if they completely go against everything that I'm saying about the progressive lens, that's fine, too. It's all about your interpretation of the work. And if you can find the evidence to make that point to me, then that's fine, too. But, like, it's just the the difference in who, what, really what you're saying, what is being said about the novel or the play while you're teaching it, you know, because when I'm teaching Mark Twain, it won't be, oh, well, he just didn't know about racism. He's all right. It's going to be, you know, like we're going to, I'll probably have a little bit of Thoreau, a little bit of, you know, there's going to be different writers from the same time that are directly opposing him to show them like, no, this is, people continue to celebrate this. The question in your mind should be why and uh, And how. Right. Yeah. Why and how and why is it common for? Why do we have to sit here and read it? That's going to be another question if it is something that is just, you know, I mean, if they tell me, no, you absolutely have to do this. The kids in the class will probably know to an extent. I'll have to decide how much I'm going to let them know about how mandatory it is, but, like, it's not going to be just like, oh, here's this great novel to kill a mockingbird, and you guys are just going to love it. You know, it's going to be a little bit different presentation. In other words, critical reading, critical thinking, critical writing. Exactly. And that's right. Well, in so opposition, because that's a lot are, of what right. I feel like uh, depicting or, or dissecting old literature is, is right. setting yourself up in your stance of modern opposition, whatever that looks like for you. It's, right. it's a rare text. 
before 1800, right. before 1900, really, right. that I agree with right. 100%. There's a couple of different stands okay. you got to take on almost everything. So we are down to about 30 seconds. Last words. Thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing learning from you at uh, UDC these last four semesters. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for giving me this gift of appearing on my show and sharing your work and sharing your future with us. Thank you so much. And, yes, please do come back to our show. Thank you. And thank you, audience, for listening to us today. And as I said to you, um, look for more podcasts um, over the course of the next couple of weeks. Thank you, Chief. Thank you, Dr. Everybody else? Yeah. All right. We're about done, so we're going to end the episode now. Bye-bye.